Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. On tonight's episode, it is very fitting that I bring on two of my no-ceilings cohorts who have yet to be on the Draft Deeper Podcast. Tyler, I think I tried to get you on at some point last year, but you and your busy schedule, you always have too many more important things to to do or accomplish than, than talk to me. Nick, I hadn't tried to get you on the show previously, but you've been doing such a fantastic job over in No Ceilings with all of your sleeper deep dives. The fact that we have a mutual love for Terrence Shannon Jr., how could I not have you on the show as well? So, boys, I'm honored to be joined by the both of you for a very special episode. But introductions are first in order. So, Tyler, how are you doing? And then, Nick, how are you doing tonight, gentlemen? I'm great. I, it's, I'm excited to finally weasel my way on here after you ghosted me for a, a year plus. Um, I just had to start a whole new writing platform and podcast network with you to to do so. So, you know, just little things. But I, I'm excited to uh, to talk with you guys tonight. Um, it, it should be a fun one. Well, Nathan and I actually worked together-ish before, long before No Ceilings became a thing over at Hoops Habits. So technically, That's I think right. he's been snubbing me for a lot longer. So... You know, just saying. Oh, my God. Now, now it's even more fitting because, yeah, going back to, to being part of the Hoops Habit family, yeah, that's that that's definitely a calling. So, boys, I'm excited for this one. This is going to be aptly titled the Johnny Davis episode. I kind of alluded to it a little bit on my column this week, the morning dunk for no ceilings, that I'm waiting to talk about Johnny Davis because I wanted to see – how real the rise was going to be because he was not on my preseason watch list. I will never claim to be an avid follower of Wisconsin Badgers basketball, but Tyler, you are probably a better expert on big 10 basketball in general than the rest of us. So I kind of wanted to kick it over to you first to set the scene a little bit because Johnny Davis isn't a he's not this this freshman that broke onto the scene like some of the others we could probably talk about on a podcast. He's a sophomore coming back and have a huge role with the Wisconsin team last year. Only played he played 24 minutes a night, but did not have nearly the role within the offense that he has now. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of the thoughts that you took away with Davis last year and why you even made some comments to us previously that there were, albeit small, there were some flashes there to indicate that he might be able to have some sort of breakout year. Yeah, I mean, so last year he caught my eye when he came off the bench for Wisconsin. Um, I don't believe he started a single game last year. And the role was completely different last year than it is this year, where this year he's basically that entire Badger team. Last year he was coming off the bench and just doing all the little things that we really don't see a ton of from freshman guards, where he was taking whatever defensive assignment he was given, he was playing hard-nosed defense, and then on offense he was just making the extra pass. He wasn't forcing shots. Uh, if he was given a wide open jumper, he would take it. I was intrigued by his athleticism and just general feel for the game on both ends of the floor. And when you kind of get those athletic combo guards who just really buy into their role from day one and come off the bench and just do the little things early on, it, it just really stood out to me as, oh, maybe in a year or two, 
this is a guy that we can be talking about as like an actual NBA guy. The the jump has been pretty astounding and not quite what I expected from him. But entering the season, I had him as like an early second round guy because of those that that two way versatility, that feel for the game, the athleticism. And I was just fascinated to see how he was going to grow into a role that, you know, now I I did not expect at all. When you put it that way, it's almost like your your storybook picturesque ascent in terms of becoming more of a leader on your team. You come in your freshman year, you want to do the little things, you're willing to do the dirty work and establish a role on the team, whatever they need you to do. And once you prove that you're willing to be coached, you're willing to come in and do those things, and everyone else around you starts recognizing the talent that you actually have, that's when the breakout generally seems to occur. When, when everyone around you respects you and the job that you do, and they trust you to do more. And he's certainly being trusted to do more. I mean, last year he averaged seven points per game um, on only 6.3 field goal attempts per game. That number, those numbers have drastically increased to 22.3 points per game on almost 18 shots per game. That, that's ridiculous. And it's not like he's just being a gunner within the offense. He's, he's one of the most crafty scorers we have in all of college basketball. And there's a few reasons why a lot of that's going to translate. And I'm sure we're going to get into that with the offense, but Nick, I'll just turn it over to you really quickly. What what have you what are some of your thoughts about Johnny Davis's ascent and his and his rise overall? I'm assuming that he's also kind of blown any expectations you might have had for him out of the water, too. Yeah, I will admit that I did not have Johnny Davis as a potential first round prospect heading into this year. And I certainly have him way up there in the first round now. I think part of the most astounding part of the season for him is, you know, you mentioned that he tripled his scoring average, but he's also been more efficient this year than he was last season. Yeah. Last year, he had a 51% true shooting mark. This year, he's up to 54%. And to be able to score at the volume that he's able to score at while not only being decent in terms of his efficiency, but much better than he was in a much smaller role as a freshman, really speaks to the growth that he's had this year. And that increase in efficiency comes with a slight decrease in his three-point percentage as compared to his freshman year. So he's taking a much larger volume of shots, and he's knocking them down at a much more efficient rate. And he's gone from someone who was a contributor off the bench to the alpha and the omega of the Wisconsin offense. And Part of that means that, you know, he's getting a lot more screens set for him as he's roaming out mm -hmm. on the perimeter. But part of that also is just that he has gotten so much better at just being able to get into mid-range shots and knock those down efficiently. And there aren't all that many players, even in the NBA, who can be really efficient with that tough of a diet of shots. And not only has he been decently efficient, but he's been better than he was as a freshman. Diet of shots is fantastic terminology to use for his arsenal overall because you look at the number of play types he registers on per synergy he registers on basically everything except for being a role man <laughs> in pick and rolls so that's impressive in and of itself what's even more impressive is that he only rates below average on two of those play types which would be in isolation and on cuts and i'm sure that we may have some comments about both, but we can start since since Nick mentioned it. We can start 
with a three-point shot. Tyler, what has stood out to me or, or what, what initially stood out to me was that he does not live behind the three-point line. And that is very rare for a guard nowadays to effectively average 20, anywhere between 20 to 25 plus points per game and not be taking like at least five plus triples. He's, he's like under that five. I think the number of attempts have increased as the season has gone along, but there was one point, I mean, he has, he has a bunch of games where he still hit that 20 plus points mark. And he's only, he's taken three or few, three or fewer three point attempts. Like, that to me screams pro ready mature score. I don't know if you kind of get that same impression. What? How do you feel about his his shot selection, two point shots versus three point shots? How much does that impress you? It's a very old school approach to how he gets his points. And you know, obviously, if he was knocking down forty percent from three on seven attempts a game, that would be awesome. That would be ideal. Yep. But I, 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 you know, he's at four and a half right now at 33%, which isn't great, but he doesn't force his shots. And I think both kind of, he, or he just does a really nice job of operating within the flow of the offense and his craft in the mid range and closer to the hoop is way more advanced and way more versatile than it is from three. We started seeing him take a few more pull-ups and a few more step-backs from three with not not a ton of success. Um, the Maryland game, if you just look at the raw numbers, I believe it was one for seven from three, which isn't great. But I believe one of those was a last-second shot clock heave yep. and two more like were halfway down and rimmed out. So, you know, that, that skews the percentages pretty drastically. I think as, as he can continues to get stronger as he continues to develop his handle and his footwork that his ability to shoot from outside is only going to get better given how successful and how versatile his mid-range scoring game is what he can do in the 15 to 20 foot range i think is so much different and unique compared to almost anyone else in this draft class and i would just be really really surprised if that doesn't end up expanding itself out to 23, 24 feet. Even now, when you look at his form, the mechanics look fine. Um, I think he's a little clumsier off the catch than he is off the dribble when he can take a couple dribbles and get into it in rhythm. I think he's a, li a little more comfortable, but I think it might just be like a strength thing um, and a balance thing and just a change in role. But I, I don't really have any long-term concerns about his outside shooting, especially now that he's starting to show a little bit more comfort um, creating space and taking a variety of threes. Well, so his his splits on jump shots off the dribble in the half court, he rates in the 70th percentile. He's hit 34 out of 82 of those shots, um, more than double the amount that he's actually taken on catch-and-shoot shots in the half court he's in the 50th percentile which by the way is still average it's not like it's terrible it's not like he's in the 20th or lower percentile although he is in the 20th percentile on guarded catch and shoot looks but unguarded he's in the 68th percentile he's hit almost 50 percent of unguarded catch and shoot shots in the half court he's 7 to 16 on the year so that's pretty good and in the nba Generally, when the ball gets swung around to him and let's say he's spacing the floor for somebody else, he's not playing on the ball, he's in the corner, 
more often than not, that shot's probably going to be open for him. And the fact that he has shown an ability to knock down open jump shots off the catch, I do consider that encouraging. Um, but then, as you mentioned, Tyler, that's split. The fact that he is so efficient off the dribble, how he rates in the 90th percentile and what Synergy considers medium shots, so that's 17 feet to just inside the three-point line. That's a really tough area to master, and the fact that he has already taken tremendous strides in mastering it in just his second year of college basketball, that's really, really, really impressive. What stands out to me when you watch his shot, Tyler, before I swing it over to Nick on, on some of his thoughts about his shot making, when he, when he is off balance, when his body is contorted at God knows what angle when he's taking some of these shots off the bounce – his release point is almost always the same. I always see his hand in the same exact spot, and it's that consistency to such an important part of his shot mechanics. I think that's why he's had so much success off the bounce. When everybody's kind of watching film and they're like, how is this shot going in or how is that shot going in? There is a legitimate consistency to what he does off the bounce. I'm assuming you've noticed some of the same. And it it all just kind of flows into how deadly he's been in that mid-range where once he picks his spot, once he knows where he wants to get to, he's almost impossible to stop from getting to that spot because of how, how much stronger he's gotten in shrugging off defenders than where he was that last year, how much better his handle has gotten from last year, and how quickly he can elevate into his shot. And he has a consistently high release point, like you mentioned, where once defenders can actually react to him getting into a shot, he's already released the ball and it's already out mm. of his hands, which I absolutely love about his game because it's it's so decisive, it's so confident, and it's so consistent that it's just going to be... I, I would be stunned if it if that skill doesn't translate to the next level for him. Nick, how many times have you had to pick your jaw up off the ground when watching Johnny Davis hit some of these mid-range shots? Like, how impressed are you with, with, with his mid-range shot making, considering you are someone who, like me, we didn't have him as a top 30 guy preseason, but he's taken meteoric rises up our boards. That's obviously the main driving factor. How, how much has he impressed you in his shot making ability so far? I have to admit that I'm stunned by his shot making ability. And as Tyler and I have talked about before, I tend to be someone who is very slow to buy into guards who are not particularly efficient, who mainly rely on mid-range jump shots. But I think the difference between Johnny Davis and so many other of those kinds of players is that he makes really good decisions with the ball in his hands. And he's looked excellent at times this year, you know, not just in terms of him being able to get to his spot in the mid-range and pull up for jaw-dropping kind of shots, but also that when the opportunity isn't there, he's shown a real willingness to move the ball along and either yeah. have somebody else shoot it or, you know, run off screens and get himself open again. I mean, that's the kind of relentless ability to sort of hunt out his own shot in a way that doesn't diminish his team that makes it really easy for me to buy in when his archetype is not always the kind of player that I'm willing to buy into, especially this early on in the draft process. I mean, when you think about scoring at the NBA level, it's can you hit open spot up shots? Can you create and manage offense out of pick and roll? Can you handle the ball and score in transition or fill the lane properly to help somebody else score in transition? Those are really the main ways that 
you see NBA offenses sort of build themselves out. And if you can excel in one or a couple of those areas, you're probably going to find yourself having some level of success almost immediately in the NBA, especially when you factor in his level of shot making. He's in the 90th percentile scoring out of pick and roll sets, 82nd percentile when you factor in pick and rolls, including passes. I think that's been really his best attribute is that as soon as he gets that initial screen up top, Tyler, when he's able to turn the corner off of that screen, he, he just knows how to pick apart a defense. He knows exactly what spots he needs to get to, how he needs to approach that situation. We've talked about the pull-up shot enough that that's pretty much his bread and butter from, from free for a line extended. He can get to the basket if needed, although he's not the greatest finisher around the basket. And, and I'm sure you might have some thoughts about that, but his manipulation as well to hit the roll man or hit a cutting guy. He's had much better passing vision than I anticipated for somebody who does take almost 18 shots per game for his team and has to have so much of the bulk of the scoring on his shoulders. He is a much more willing passer than I thought. Talk about some of his passing out of pick and roll sets and, and some of his unselfishness offensively in general. I think it really kind of stems from what I talked about with how he played as a freshman and playing within the flow of the offense and playing that role and making sure that the ball's consistently moving. When you look at his assist numbers, it's going to be underwhelming. But then when you look at Wisconsin as a team and remove Johnny Davis's numbers, they're shooting 48% from two and 28% from three. Those aren't good numbers. It's kind of Kate Cunningham-esque at Oklahoma State last year, where even though he's making these you know, great passes, it's not necessarily being rewarded and kind of undervaluing Davis as a playmaker. But like you said, it's just consistently the right decision. He's not the best playmaker in this class, but I do think he's one of the best passers with his vision and ability to just hit the open man and read the defense, take what they give him to just make sure that they consistently get the best shot possible. You mentioned how he can really dissect the defense when he comes off the pick. And I think that's when he's really at his best, both in his passing and scoring. I mean, he's in the 94th percentile uh, when he dribbles off the pick and scoring. But then once given his improved scoring, he has such a gravity that the defense has to collapse on him now. And that's just going to continue opening up lanes for guys sliding into the dunker spot or, you know, even more wide open, corner threes than there have been because and and he will find them because even though he's not the flashiest playmaker the passing accuracy consistency and vision is all there for a guy who can just help take an offense to another level um just because the ball is just constantly moving and finding the open man one of the other things i love about johnny nick is and i talked about this a little bit with matt Babcock. Matt Babcock, excuse me, on my podcast yesterday that I recorded with him, how it's not just the offensive responsibility that he has. It's also the fact that defensively, he takes the other team's best player on defensively. He takes that matchup and he takes it with pride. And you hear some, you hear some of the comments, you read some of the stories that are coming out now, now that he's had this meteoric ascent up a lot of draft boards and he's garnered so much buzz and so much attention for Wisconsin. A lot of people are starting to write stories about him and they're, they're profiling his character and how he approaches the game. And he wants, he wants all the smoke. 
He wants all the smoke on offense, and he wants all the smoke on defense. So you just start to put his his load on both ends of the floor up against some of the other top prospects that we can talk about in his class. I I don't think there's another player in this class who has as much responsibility night in and night out as he does, and he's done more than just excel in those areas of opportunity. Um, is that something that definitely cat- has helped catapult him up your board as well, Nick? The defense is definitely a huge part of it. You know, the offensive creation and his load on the offensive end is one thing, but you know, as you mentioned, his not only ability, but willingness to take on the best opposing player on defense every single night is huge for his draft stock. I mean, he's someone who is going to have to be able to defend at least at a competent level to be the kind of top half of the lottery player that Tyler certainly thinks of him as. And, you know, we were talking actually a little bit earlier on our podcast, the NBA Deep Dives podcast, little mid-podcast plug for all of you, but we were talking about sort of the difference between Jaden Ivey and Johnny Davis. And I think that Tyler certainly gave Jaden Ivey a little bit more flack for his defense in that game than I would have agreed with. But ultimately, what we had to agree on is that Johnny Davis stayed on Jaden Ivey basically every minute that Jaden Ivey was on the floor. And part of the reason that that showcase game was a strong showcase game for Johnny Davis and not as strong of a game for Jaden Ivey is that Jaden Ivey was mostly invisible and Johnny Davis stuck with him for a lot of that game and forced him to give the ball up a lot more than he would have liked. And ultimately when you're the kind of offensive hub that Johnny Davis has been for Wisconsin, while also being able to take on that level of defensive responsibility. Yeah. That's definitely a huge positive for his draft stock. So Nick, just looking at your big board, your, your latest board that you put into the pool for our no ceiling composite board, that we just released, you have Jay Nivey third, and you have mm-hmm. Johnny Davis eighth. So there is a significant gap between the two. So I'm assuming that you didn't take as kindly to Tyler's original notion that <laughs> the battle between Jay Nivey and Jonathan Davis should be a little closer than someone like you would rank, for example. Are, are, are you sort of coming around to Tyler's argument a little more, or are you kind of still split in, in that you, you do see Ivy as at least one level ahead of Davis as a prospect so far. I think it's a combination of those things. I think really the main thing is that I'm just very, very high on Jaden Ivy. It's not as much of a comment on Johnny Davis at all as it is a comment on the fact that I really believe in Jaden Ivy. Also, admittedly, Johnny Davis at eight was a significant rise from where I had him on the first big board. And so part of that is just, you know, catching up a little bit and seeing more of his film and seeing how impressive he's been. I think that by the time we get around to version 3.0, there's a good chance that I have Johnny Davis in the top half of the lottery rather than the bottom half of the lottery. He's been incredibly impressive. I don't want to deny that at all. I think really the only difference in ranking there is just that I am a huge believer in Jaden Ivey, and I've been a huge believer in Jaden Ivey since before this season, whereas with Davis, it's more been coming around on him rather than just being really high on him and staying really high on him. Metcalf, you, on the other hand, have Davis ahead of Ivy. You you made that bold proclamation. You thought you were coming out on the No Ceilings podcast with a hot take that you had Davis over Ivy. That's where this conversation was going to end. And then I said, fuck that. 
I want to one-up this guy and I want to put something even crazier out there on the sub stack in my morning dunk column. And part of the conversation that I wanted to have was I wanted to throw Johnny Davis's name into the ring of the quote unquote top three, the bad boys in this draft, or in Nick's case, since he has Ivy number three, he does not have the Holmgren Smith, Ben Caro combination in the top three. He has Ivy in that combo, but let, let's open it up to the top four that Davis should be entering that conversation of, could he possibly sneak his way to number one overall in this class? Now I preface those comments as I did in my column by saying, I am not there yet. And I don't even have Davis ahead of Ivy right now. I had Davis before a lot of this, craziness and chaos happened with these these previous handful of games for Davis when we came out with our boards I had Johnny at number seven if I had to redo the board today he has done enough to get him up to that five spot so I do not have him ahead of those four guys in this moment in time but I think I kind of wanted to be the first one to put that question out there because I'm so confident that somebody's going to have him number one at some point in this draft cycle, and it's just going to start an avalanche of people asking themselves the same question, why don't I have him number one? I don't know if it's going to be Tyler that ends up having him number one at some point with his for Davis. I don't know if it's going to be me. I don't know if Nick just wakes up one morning after, you know, he, he's, he has some crazy hangover or something, and he's just thinking all weird and different. He's like, maybe I'm going to be having number one overall. I have no idea. I'm just, I'm just kidding, Nick. I'm just making comments. But <laughs> – all right, Tyler, am I crazy to put that question out there and, and try to, to put him in comparison at the top of the draft with some of the quote-unquote golden boys that have already established themselves in that range? And if we're just going off of pure production and what these guys have done on the court, I don't think it's absurd, um, but the whole draft is projecting long-term. and. Yep. You know, I, I I I have Davis in that second tier of guys where I have Chet pretty clear number one, and then I have Jabari, Davis, and um, Paolo in that second tier. And based on who I watch more recently, I, I shuffle them around pretty regularly. So I, I have Johnny that high. I think he is that good. And the immense amount of growth that he's shown over, you know, in in a one-year span has been absurd um so it it won't surprise me when someone puts him at number one especially if he somehow leads wisconsin to a deep you know march madness run or a uh, big 10 uh title but I, I i don't think that's right because the physical gifts that those other three guys have give them such a, a much higher upside of what they could absolutely be in their 90th or 95th percentile outcomes than what Davis's does. Um, but if we're going solely based on production and what these guys have done on a nightly basis on the court, I, I don't think it's absurd to have Davis in that same conversation as those guys. Nick, what are some of the concerns with, with Johnny Davis that, that you've been careful to note that you've taken into account with your evaluation and why you don't have him in the top half of the lottery. What are some of the concerns, some of the drawbacks that could hold him back from reaching that type of status amongst this draft class? Is it only because 
those other three are just more physically gifted and they have things that you can't teach like Tyler alluded to, or are there a few more concerns that we would want to highlight on this podcast? So the physical gifts are really the biggest one for me. I mean, when you're talking about the f- top four, I guess at this point, Chet Holmgren, Paula Bunkera, Jaden Ivey, Jabari Smith, those guys just have athletic gifts that few human beings on this earth possess. And, you know, therefore, I think that gives them, as Tyler was mentioning, I think that gives them a higher like 90th, 95th percentile outcome than Johnny Davis. The three-point shooting, I'm not particularly worried about, but I think he could do better at scoring around the rim. You know, we've talked this entire podcast about his mid-range game, his pull-up game, which is fantastic and arguably the best in this class, but I am a bit worried about his ability to score around the rim, especially given that compared to Jaden Ivey, he's not that same level of athlete. There's, I think, more reason for me to be concerned about his ability to finish around the rim at the NBA level. But that being said, I mean, these are nitpicks and it's getting harder and harder to find those nitpicks with his game as he continues to just absolutely go supernova pretty much every game at this point. Tyler, what are some of the things that hold him back from a finishing perspective? Because I think you've done a great job outlining Davis's game on multiple platforms for us in those zones. What are some of the things that hold him back from a finishing perspective? Is it how much, how much height he gets off the ground and then how he's able to challenge defenders on that shot from a verticality perspective. Is it his touch around the basket? What what are the things that do hold him back? I think it is that elite burst that say Ivy has because, you know, I, I, Nick and I have talked about this, but I I'm concerned that Ivy is only a one hand finisher at the rim, but if you can't stop him from getting to his right, does it really matter? Um, Johnny Davis doesn't have that elite first step, that absurd explosion off the ground. Um, I, I I know he put Trace J- Jackson Davis on a poster a couple times in that Indiana game, but when that happened, I you know you were like, oh shit, like where did that come from? Because he's not this naturally explosive, quick twitchy athlete like Ivy is. What I really like about him is that I, I think he has really good touch with both hands on floaters and uses angles really well to finish at the rim. I think that his, you know, his use of angles with finishing is m- most highlighted when he's dribbling off that screen and then snakes through the lane and then splits the double when the weak side defender rotates over and extends with either hand to finish on the opposite side of the rim. When he does that stuff, it's really impressive and it's like okay this is a seasoned score but then there are some times where he tries to just barrel through guys and use that explosiveness that needs a little more load time than say ivy and that's when he kind of gets into trouble when he tries to go through or over guys because he i don't think that's as reliable for him um especially at the next level I love how you snuck that Trace Jackson Davis slander in there and thought none of us would know this. <laughs> I had to. You're not slick. You're not slick, Tyler. Oh my God, boys! This is this is not a Trace Jackson Davis podcast. Come on, let's let's let, let let's stick to the topic at hand here. No, I'm just kidding. But so my argument for Johnny Davis continuing to rise up the board, not just staying where he's at. We talk about his big game heroics. He's really only had two quote-unquote stakers on the year from a shooting perspective, and that was against Green Bay and Illinois State, two teams that clearly aren't going to set the world on fire. But 
every other big game where he's been called upon to carry the offense and actually produce, like Texas A&M, Houston, in their loss to Ohio State, he still had a very efficient game. Purdue, Iowa, Maryland, like he's producing at such a high level in those games. And it's gotten to the point where, as Tyler sort of alluded to earlier on in the podcast, like the rest of this Wisconsin team, while they may be well-coached defensively and they may be a veteran team who is connected defensively, they can win some ugly games. They are not a good team offensively without Johnny Davis. Their, their second best offensive player is probably Brad Davison, who I feel like Brad Davison's been in school for as long as I've been out of school. He's been at, it feels like he's been in Wisconsin that long. So just the fact that his team would struggle mightily on the offensive end without him. And it's gotten to the point where everyone else, especially when you watch against Purdue, against Iowa and against Maryland, these last three games, everybody just seems to be playing with so much more confidence. It's because they can look over at Johnny and say, we're going to win this game because we have that guy. And no matter what happens, he's going to at least make the game competitive for us and give us a chance to win night after night. And I'm just looking through some of these other top names, and this isn't a podcast about every single top name in this draft class, but you look, you look at Paolo Bencaro and Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith and Jay Nivey. Jay Nivey is technically his own conversation because I think we can all agree that his situation is more unique than the other guys. I don't think that he's in a situation that's behoove of, of, of himself to be able to succeed at a higher level as some of these other guys. Um, I think he's going to have his talents much better utilized in the NBA, but how many of those other guys give off that impression of I can do this night after night and I, 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 my team has so much more confidence and belief in themselves and in us as a collective because I'm here and I'm just laying waste to opponents night after night. Like I, I don't get that impact from anybody else in this draft class and maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that, guys. Maybe you guys would argue for, for somebody else, but that's really what props him up for, for me is when we talk about taking a player number one overall, sure, we they can have their flaws and then we can nitpick some of their flaws. But at the end of the day, that top rank should be reserved for arguably the best leader in this draft class. And right now, where we sit at this point in the season, I haven't seen a better on-court leader who could challenge for that number one spot than Johnny Davis. And, and, and do I have a case here, Nick, or am I completely out of bounds with that comment? I think you have a case here, but I think part of the main reason that you have a case here is, so I, just for the two guys that I have at the top, Chet and Paulo Banquero, they have a much better team situation yeah. around them, and therefore they aren't required to, you know, put up 18 shots a night and lead the offense and take care of the best player on the opposing team on defense. I mean, one of the biggest criticisms of Paulo, especially at the high school level, but even at times during his Duke career, is that sometimes he looks like he's almost bored out there and it's just like, oh, I'll try <laughs> this, you know, dribble into a contested 19-foot post fadeaway because, I don't know, we're up by 25 and I'm bored right now. And, you know... Gonzaga has been the most dominant program in college basketball over the last five years, and Chet Holmgren has an incredible supporting cast around him, whereas, as both of you have mentioned throughout this podcast, Johnny Davis is really it for the Wisconsin offense. So I think that 
especially on the defensive end, Chet has shown that kind of team leadership. But I think ultimately it just shines through more for Johnny Davis because his team needs him a lot more than Gonzaga needs Chet Holmgren or Duke needs Paulo Boncaro. Probably the main the, the, the main combative point against my argument for Davis in that sort of capacity is that you talk about, you kind of alluded to it, Nick, that, that Chet and Paolo and Jabari, especially Jabari, they can kind of find a home on virtually every team in the NBA. Like every NBA team is targeting those three guys at the top of the draft because almost every NBA team can use one of those three guys and just insert them into the lineup and they're just that more beneficial to the team's overall success and in different ways Palo's obviously an in offense first player chet and jabari provide things on the defensive end that Palo doesn't provide but they aren't at times as uniquely gifted offensively in terms of shot making as Palo. but i digress those three players seem to be more valued by nba teams i don't know if every nba team necessarily needs a johnny davis or maybe maybe it Every NBA team could use a Johnny Davis, and he's going to prove to be that much special of a player, especially if Wisconsin keeps winning. What do you think about that, Metcalf? Hey, I would certainly take a Johnny Davis on the Timberwolves right now. Um, <laughs> I, I, because I, I think he's proven that he can take over and be that main guy as he is this year. But he's also not afraid to, you know, take a lesser role and play more within the team concept, which he kind of still does on a nightly basis. And even though the the Badgers, you know, look to him and are, you know, they, they're more confident that they're going to win because he they have him on their team. He's still continuously getting those guys involved. So it's not just the D Johnny Davis show, even though that's what the box score says every night. He's still moving the ball. He's still looking for guys. He's still hitting the open guy. He's still playing hard on defense and communicating and picking up his teammates and doing all those things, which it'd be so hard to not want to play super hard for that guy and with that guy. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I, I guess the the archetypes of, you know, Jabari, Chad, and Paolo are a little more unique and a little more rare, but I think the type of player who can be the star can be a role player can fit into really any situation like johnny can is also equally as rare i opened that question up to to matt babcock and, and he openly admitted that he's not at the point in his evaluation process to where he's ready to boldly proclaim one way or the other where johnny davis will ultimately stand on his board and within his mock drafts as we get later in the year he's not there yet but he was willing to be open-minded about how high Johnny could ultimately rise. Nick, if you had to make a bet as to where you think he will ultimately be drafted, like what sort of the realistic range for him that you see as we get to the end of the year, and then, and then I'll ask this question to Tyler as well. Where would you personally feel comfortable drafting him and, and, and recouping value on him? Honestly, at this point, I think I would – be considering him as soon as the fifth pick. I think that I have Chet right now as pretty clear number one, although I had Paulo at number one for a while, and I definitely could see them flip-flopping for the first overall pick. I think that even maybe at four, if the first three off the board are Chet, Paulo, and Jabari Smith, there might be 
a few NBA teams who like Tyler think that Johnny Davis is the best guard prospect in this class. And I wouldn't be, too, I wouldn't disagree too strongly with having him as high as four, but I think the range where I would be comfortable is starting at five. And then really, if he's still on the board by like 11 or 12, I think he should definitely go. So I think probably the range I would guess for him right now is five to the end of the lottery, but really more like five to 10, I think is probably the range he's going to end up at. What about you, Tyler? I think I'm kind of in the same boat where I think he will end up at. Um, it, once they get into empty gyms and do testing and physical measurements and all that kind of stuff, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if a guy like Jalen Duran, you know, jumps him and really skyrockets because of how physically gifted he is and just how impressed front offices are with, with him. Um, but, you know, if he gets in an empty gym and starts knocking down a ton of threes in front of scouts and stuff. It won't surprise me if he went earlier or sooner rather than later. Uh, personally, I think I, I, I would take him at, you know, three or four right now. Um, but it would be pretty surprising to me if come draft night, if an NBA team took him, you know, high, higher than five or six, probably. What? I, I guess I'll end the podcast on these, these last two questions here. So Tyler, what, what do you think his ultimate ceiling is? Because the way I would have answered that question previously is I thought that he, he's definitely emerged as a tier three player for me. And a tier three player for me is at some point in your career, you just guarantee yourself to be a starter on a really good NBA team. I'm starting to think he's actually a tier two guy. And that would be, someone who is qualified enough to be an all-star, somebody who you're likely throwing a max contract at and you're generally not thinking twice about it. I don't have any tier one prospects right now in this draft. That includes Jabari, Chet, Paolo. I think that they're all going to be max level talents and complementary stars to a, a, a superstar or a megastar, however you want to classify that term. Do you what what do you think Johnny Davis's ultimate ceiling is? Do you think he belongs in that in that tier two type of conversation with with those guys? Even if you might pick those other guys ahead of him, do you think he at least belongs there if we're projecting ultimate ceiling? I do. Um, so w when I watch Johnny Davis, I see Brandon Roy, I see Devin Booker, I see Donovan Mitchell. Th those are the types of players that I see, and those are all stars. Those are guys who could be one of the three best players on a contender. Um, so that th that's how high I, I am on him because of the immense load he's taken on on both ends of the floor, his ability to score and then play gritty defense, to move the ball, to move off ball, to avoid screens, to navigate the pick and roll, to box guys out, to deny the ball in the post. It's just he his entire approach to the game is everything I love about basketball. Um, so what once that three point shot really comes around like I expected to, I I think he could be you know what one of the two or three best players on a contender. What about you, Nick? How would you classify his ceiling and 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 his his overall upside from like a tiered perspective? What what kind of player group would you put him in right now? I think that if I had to tier it like that, that he would probably be. And this is going to sound off just because literally a week ago I had him lower than this. But I think right now I would consider as tier two guys, 
Chet, Paulo, Jaden Ivey, Jabari Smith, and Jalen Duran just purely based on upside. I think that I will probably, especially by the time we have version three of our big boards, I think I will probably have Johnny Davis as sixth and the very back end of that tier. I think that the five guys I mentioned ahead of him have higher absolute peaks, but I think especially from what we've seen of Johnny Davis so far this season, it seems like, at least in comparison to, say, Jalen Duran, I think he's much more likely to hit his 50th percentile outcomes and even his 90th percentile outcomes just based on how spectacular he's been this year. So I think I would have him at the very back end of that all-star potential tier, but I think at this point I would probably have him around there. That's that's an absolutely fair assessment. So, Nick, I'll start with you. I'll ask this last question, and then I'll kick it over to Tyler. So. If Davis is going to keep climbing up your board and get to where you think you're going to put him by the next edition of your board, what do you want to see from Davis to essentially make that swap? Is it is it is it basketball skill related? Is it just more like a winning factor? Like if he keeps carrying his team to these big wins, like is that enough to do it for you? Because for me, I I, I think and and this might be an answer that the both of you have. I think it's easy to say, well, if his three-point percentage continues to climb on similar or greater volume than what it's at now, that's obviously a massive indicator too. Maybe this guy does have a little more potential than we were initially thinking. I think, as Tyler and I talked about, I think his his shot mechanics are good. I do buy the shot. I buy the shot just naturally improving over time with more repetition, especially once he gets to the NBA. I think... If he just if that team just keeps winning basketball games and they keep winning in the same style that they are, that you can just tell everybody on the court is so excited to step on that court and they're just excited to play with Johnny and everybody's engaged and energized and and they just keep doing that. I think that's enough for me to keep raising him on, on my board. But what what do you in particular want to see there? Honestly, it's pretty simple. I really just want to see him take and make more three pointers. I think that the main concerns that I have about his finishing around the rim are not something that he's going to fix over the next two plus months of the college season. But if he can just add a couple more pull-up threes to his shot diet every game and go from, say, 33% to you know somewhere closer to NBA league average, like 35 36 37% range, then I think at that point I'd definitely have to consider him for the top five. But... I think that the other sort of developmental changes in his game will be longer term things in terms of finishing around the rim. I mean, in terms of getting to the line and making his free throws, he's already really good on that front. So really the only offensive thing that I would need to see from him to boost him up higher would just be more three-point makes and even more three-point attempts, honestly, if he can hold at that 33% mark just to show that He's someone who is more dangerous from beyond the arc. I think that would be enough for me to boost him higher. But that's really the main thing that I'm going to be watching for him down the stretch because there is very little doubt in my mind that he's going to continue to play this large of an offensive role for Wisconsin. And if he keeps up what he's been doing so far this season, which I have no reason to doubt at this point, I sincerely doubt that I will drop him out of the top 10 and top eight, and maybe even top six at this point. This is why I'm excited for Nick to plug NBA Deep Dives at the end of this podcast and why he's a better host than I am. I almost went a whole podcast without talking about Johnny Davis's free throw shooting. 
and how often he gets to the line and how big of a part that is about his game, something that I've raved about on other shows. I almost didn't mention it on the Johnny Davis episode. Jesus, I'm, I'm a terrible host. I'm sorry. But Tyler, what, what about you? What do you want to see from, from Johnny throughout the course of the year? Honestly, just more of the same. So just to, to piggyback off the, the free throw comment, I, he was at one and a half last year. He's up to almost six a game this year on 80.5%. Um, that's a, I think that combined with his touch on his floaters and kind of touch at the rim, I think is really encouraging for that three-point shot to continue to develop and improve. So even if the percentage, similar to Nick, even if the percentage doesn't drastically change this season, and I don't really expect it to, I don't have any long-term concerns about it. Um, with the at-rim stuff, I kind of almost expect it to get worse as the season goes on, because I just expect defenses to continue to sell out even more just to stop him and completely, completely collapse in the lane when he drives. So I, I don't envision him getting awesome opportunities to really boost that percentage. Um, for long-term development things, my biggest issue with him is his defensive footwork, where I love his work rate, I love his instincts, I love his screen navigation, but he turns his hips to chase and crosses his feet all the time, which is a huge pet peeve of mine. So I think he has the athleticism, he has the skill and the awareness and the intelligence to develop it, but he really needs to work on sliding his feet instead of crossing and turning to chase, or else he's really going to get into trouble in the next, at the next level defensively, I think. I agree with that because he doesn't really have the, the quickness to always recover and make up for some of those mistakes as well. We're, we're in full agreement there, but even when he does make some of those mistakes, the fact that he is just that much of a hound on defense and can give so many other people fits, that, that, that's just a testament to his work ethic and his will to win. And those two things are always very important to me. They're, they're things that I always try to highlight on this podcast whenever I can. But, fellas, this was a blast. I'm so thrilled that I finally got you two on. I can't wait to get more of our No Ceilings writing team on because I feel like I've failed so miserably at doing that this season. It's been up to now. We're recording January 11th, and I had yet to get you boys on a podcast. Good God, I, I, I apologize. But seriously, it's been a blast. Nick, why don't you take some time, plug some of your work, your content, NBA deep dives, everything that you're doing. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having us on. Really fun to chat Johnny Davis with y'all. Plugs. So Tyler and I recorded the episode of NBA Deep Dives for this week, right before we hopped on this call with you. So that should be out either tonight, Tuesday evening, or early tomorrow morning. Then on Thursday, I have my next Sleeper Deep Dives piece. I'm going to be writing about Travion Williams, who- Let's go. Is, oh, man. I've just been rewatching some of his passing clips and it's just astounding to watch him move the ball. But anyway, that'll be up on Thursday and I will also have a piece going up on Nets Republic on Friday. So yeah, that's sort of my deal for the week. And where can everybody find you on Twitter most importantly so they can see all of the, the ridiculous arguments that we get in with everybody and all the banter? Yes, the banter can be found at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. So that's where I am on Twitter. And most of the Twittering that I do is sarcastic responses to y'all. So there you go. Metcalf, plug everything that you're doing, man. Plug where they can find you. Plug out all the content you're doing. Yeah, just just everything. No ceilings. No ceilings Substack. No ceilings YouTube. Uh, no ceilings podcast. 
no ceilings twitter go follow subscribe rate review share read it listen watch all of it do it um it's all free it's all glorious work i'll have some another skill breakdown coming out on friday i don't know what yet not, <laughs> not a great tease but but it'll be good it'll be entertaining <laughs> you'll love it so so make sure to keep an eye out for it um and then sometime in the next week i'll be putting out a kind of in-depth look at what jared vanderbilt has been doing over on canis hoopus um so make sure to keep an eye out for that and i share everything on twitter at tmetcalf11 uh that's the easiest place to find me i'm just gonna plug these guys one more time it's been a true joy to work with the both of them over a no ceilings as i said earlier the the sleeper deep dives pieces that nick does i believe every other thursday sometimes even more often than that they're an absolute joy to read. Um, they're excellent content, highlighting prospects that sometimes we forget about, but it's obviously important to evaluate everyone, especially when they're 60 or in this year's case, as we keep making fun of 58 picks in the draft, you got to know more than just the top 20 players who are repeatedly talked about all the time, like on this podcast where we just talked about Johnny Davis for an hour. We, we got to talk about everybody. So I can't wait to read about Trey Van Williams and then Tyler your Friday screener pieces where you are, you're not just doing the usual video film breakdown for like five to seven minutes on YouTube of just like taking one or two clips about a few skills. You are taking the time to nearly fully break down a skill for a prospect. And I think those have been so insightful for me to read because I gain so much knowledge than just seeing the same one, two or three highlight clips on a bunch of different skills. I actually get to learn something unique about a player, something that's a little more in-depth than usual. So the work that these two have been doing, incredible content. I cannot encourage my audience enough to, if you're not already subscribed to the No Ceiling Substack, please, for God's sakes, do it. Noceilings.substack.com. It's free. These two, they're better writers than I am. The, the, the numbers will tell you, they get more views on their pieces than I do on mine. So definitely join to read them. Thank you for listening to this episode of this podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find Draft Deeper wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Follow the No Ceilings Twitter account at No Ceilings NBA. We have so much more in store for you guys. We're, we're having a giant team meeting this upcoming weekend, so Lord, Lord only knows what's going to come out of that one. Rucker already said to, to have a bottle of booze ready and some, some food by your side because we're going to be – planning out a bunch of fun content for our audience as a whole. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the week.